Welcome to the ConderVultures.com podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski, a Miami real estate broker, Wall Street consultant, and expert witness. This podcast is focused on identifying real estate buying opportunities in the South Florida condo market, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. The ConderVultures.com podcast is not authorized by the South Florida real estate industry and will most likely annoy many of the region's talking heads. This podcast will feature straight talk and salty language that could be offensive to some. Please remember that part that past investment success does not determine future gains, especially in the South Florida's volatile condo market. For more information, please visit condovultures.com. Welcome to the Condo Vultures podcast. This is Peter Zaluski. I'm the host. This is Miami Real Estate and Economic Roundtable. It is a weekly conversation that I have with three current and former journalists. I myself am a former journalist. Um, did it for about 13 uh, years or so, and I've been doing the real estate thing for um, a little bit more than uh, 13 years as well. So um, for this particular week, um, and by the way, this is episode number 38. This particular week, um, we're going to discuss a whole variety of stories. We're going to go everything from the first day of school and an internet uh, meltdown to what's going on with uh, software COVID cases, to MGM um, resorts out in Vegas laying off a ton of people that had been furloughed and what it could mean for South Florida, as well as uh, looking at an out-of-town um, uh, real estate investment trust out of Denver dropping $120 million on a um, rental complex, which was built in 1984 over in uh, greater downtown Miami. So those will be some of the stories we're discussing. I'm also going to, um, uh, we're going to have a segment where we make predictions. I have uh, three other uh, panelists. I have Ken Silverstein. Ken's an investigative reporter, been doing it for close to 30 years. I got Oscar Musabai. Oscar used to write about real estate down here in South Florida. Now he does public relations. And also, too, I have John Fackler. He used to write about white-collar crime as well as publicly traded company. So the four of us are going to kick around some of the biggest uh, headlines. We're also going to get into a segment that focuses on comments. So if you, the audience, you have any uh, suggestions, you have any criticisms, any complaints, uh, any compliments... Any and everything we want to hear from you, please send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. So fasten that seatbelt, lean back, and uh, get ready to enjoy a very um, interesting, entertaining, and probably laugh-filled um, uh, discussion. Are you a primary user or real estate investor who's in the market for a discounted South Florida condo? Are you searching in the markets of greater downtown Miami, Miami Beach north to Sunny Isles Beach, Hollywood north to Fort Lauderdale, or anywhere else east of I-95 in the Tri-County South Florida region? If so, the buyer brokers at Condo Vultures Realty are here to assist you. Condo Vultures Realty is a licensed Florida brokerage that was established in 2006 to assist educated buyers in identifying, negotiating, and purchasing units at a discounted price. To speak with a buyer broker at Condo Vultures Realty, please call 305-865-5859 or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures podcast. This is the Miami Real Estate and Economic Roundtable. It's a discussion by current and former journalists kicking around the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week. We're starting to refer to it as the Reporters Roundtable. So who do we have on the Reporters Roundtable this particular week? We have Oscar Musabai. used to write about uh, real estate in South Florida. Right now, he's a partner in a public relations marketing firm called Influence Communication. Mr. Musabai, how's it going? Good. Let's hit it. <laughs> Let's hit I it. <laughs> I don't want to keep flipping. 
<laughs> you don't want to keep slipping in reference to a comment we're going to get we're going to get to That's later right. on. We also have John Fackler. John used to write about white collar crime as well as publicly traded companies based in South Florida. Right now, he's a private consultant. Mr. Fackler, how's it going? Nice, good. nice, nice. And our rotating uh, uh, panelist is a gentleman who's worked for a whole variety of publications. has his own has his, has his own publication. Uh, his name is Ken Silverstein. Been a journalist for effectively what a Ken thirty years or so. Spent some time living down here in Miami. Tries to come down here and visit as often as he can. But based in Washington D.C., what's going on, Ken? Oh, everything's just great. You know, global pandemic, economic crisis, <laughs> raining all day. <laughs> couldn't be happier. Well, 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 Ken, at least the good news is that the NFL football season is going to be starting and uh, your Washington Redskins are supposed to be uh, real dominant this year. Oh, whoa, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. I don't think I can say that. The Washington football team the Washington is supposed to be dominant. This. Team. That's yeah. Great. Nice. Yeah. I'm looking. For, I think the season is probably going to last about three days, but we'll see. <laughs> well, for, for the audience, if you're not familiar with this uh, particular um, uh, uh, episode and what we do, the concept, we bring together current and former journalists, kick around some of the biggest headlines that have gone on. Now, the reason I re- I'm re- reminding you of that is Ken was our first um, participating journalist to actually uh, join uh, John as well as Oscar. So um, as Ken joins, we're going to start to be making some changes. We got it. We've built up a stable of journalists and going forward, you're going to start to see rotating faces and voices um, uh, in the weeks ahead. These roundtables, again, they run on Wednesdays. Remember, on Monday, I, 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 Peter, I do an update about what's going on in a particular condo market. And then on Fridays, we do a guest interview. So um, we're really sort of expanding, trying to get our sea legs. And uh, I'm very encouraged by uh, what it looks like. So, so guys, what's, what is encouraging is supposedly the Florida uh, COVID numbers are starting to at least level off. And, I, and I've been trying to begin all of these roundtables with COVID numbers because it sort of sets the theme as to what's going on on a, on a business side. So let me just give you the data real quickly. I won't try to hit bang, uh, uh, give you too much, but just the, the, the finer points. Basically, in the state of Florida, you got 623,000 cases. This is coming from the Florida Department of Health COVID-19 dashboard. Of that, South Florida, which is Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County, going to represent about 278,000. Two, excuse me, 268,000, 268 out of 623. So about 43% of all the COVID cases confirmed have occurred in this three-county area, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County. On the death count, you have 11, just under 11,200 deaths as of August the 31st, and roughly 4740 have been in the Tri-County South Florida area, representing about 42%. So, you know, a good chunk is all sort of going on down here in South Florida, which it typically does in the economy. So as South Florida goes, so goes the um, the ultimate um, or the uh, yeah, the ultimate economy as well as COVID. So what do we got on a county by county basis? Just really quickly on the case count, I'll give you percentages. Miami-Dade County represents 25 percent of all the COVID cases that have been confirmed in Florida. Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is, represents 11 percent. And then Palm Beach County where Donald Trump, the president, has his Mar-a-Lago, is representing 7%. Now, on the death count, we're looking at um, Dade County representing about 22%, Broward County 11%, and Palm Beach County about 10%. Um, anybody have anything to suggest or offer just in terms of uh, how significant the, the COVID-19 is and, and where your guys' sort of mindsets are right now? Well, it seems, like, it seems like Publix is taking advantage of these numbers and thinking ahead because they're eliminating the one way lanes that they had inside the stores. 
public uh, supermarket, which is all throughout the state of Florida. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the largest, if not the largest in Florida. And it had one-way lanes, you know, these stickers with arrows that said you, you could only go in one direction. Yep. And, and they're eliminating those unless it's required by, you know, the county or, or another government. So to me, that indicates that they're also responding to these lower numbers. Yep. Well, well, and, and to give you a headline before I go to our first headline, we'll give you a headline related to the COVID cases. Um, Miami Herald was reporting that the Florida reports the fewest new COVID-19 cases since June, since June. So that's at least encouraging. Now, how much of it has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, the testing seems to be being pulled back, but that's sort of another discussion. So you, you, got, you guys ready for the headlines? Ready. All right, here we go. Let's go for it. On the day, and this is August the 31st, on the day that Miami-Dade County has joined Broward County and Palm Beach County in permitting, once again, indoor dining. Up till this point, it's been outdoor dining. On the day that uh, indoor dining up to 50% capacity is allowed in Dade County, what do we get? We get a headline coming out of the Miami New Times. Headline reads, and Oscar, this one's for you because you're the Miami Beach uh, representative. After four decades in Miami Beach, David's Cafe is closing. David's Cafe, wow. uh, here, here, here's the lead. Miami Beach has seen a lot of ups and downs, but through hurricanes and economic upticks and downturns, one thing well, it's certain, David's Cafe, where you can get a cafecito at the um, Bentanita, lunch at the counter, or even a fancy dinner at the restaurant's dining room. Now, after 42 years, David's Cafe's uh, cafecito will close after service today, August the 31st, the day that indoor dining is permitted. Oscar, what, what say you, and give people an idea about David's Cafe, its significance, its location, and then what, what say you about that? So it's on the west side of Miami Beach on Alton Road, and it's a uh, Cuban food, and it's got uh, definitely a, a Cuban feel to it when you walk in. David's used to be somewhere else as well, so this isn't the first time that they've had uh, a big change, but they're indicating that they're going to close, I guess, permanently. I mean, they're not the only ones. Puig, I guess the Guayabera guy, was saying that he was shutting down, and now supposedly it's going to be sold online. So there's a lot of impact on Cuban, Cuban-American businesses in Miami on the beach. David's is one of the few uh, real Cuban long-term restaurants that have been around, and it's, it's a big blow. I used to go there all the time. And when you go in there, you're definitely going to hear Spanish being spoken. You're going to get a cafecito whenever you want. Yep. They had, they had a window just like all the other uh, Cuban restaurants. And uh, it's psychologically, it's, it's a, I think it is a significant uh, blow to not only the, uh, the restaurant sector, but also to, Cubans contribution to Miami beach. Yep. 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 And, and for, for, for what it's worth guys, I mean, um, uh, uh, we're, we're seeing a whole series of these well-established restaurants. Now, now last week we talked about cake Thai. cake Thai was a, um, a restaurant that really got some notoriety just cause it was, it was cheap and it was good, authentic type of food, uh, over in downtown Miami, but they'd only been around like five, five years, seven years. David's cafe has been around 42 years. Um, uh, the gentleman who runs it now, the son of the parents, he's 46 years old. He says he's been, he's been there, you know, since he was four, 
effectively mm. at this place. And, and for an institution like that to suddenly disappear, I mean, Oscar, is it up there in the same rankings of like a, as, as a Versailles? No. Or, okay. Okay. So no, you want to give us some say. context? No. Yeah. Versailles is Versailles in La Carreta or in Little Havana. And, and that has a different kind of significance because whenever Fidel Castro dies, my people get out there with pots and pan, pans and uh, <laughs> celebrate. And I think he's died like five times already. So <laughs> that's where you go when Fidel dies. And uh, uh, it, it doesn't, David's doesn't hold a candle to that kind of icon, I, I, iconic restaurant and iconic feel. Yep. But it's still a very important satellite yep. on Miami Beach. And it gives people like me, comfort when you can go in there and you can get a croqueta sandwich and you can get uh, a cafecito and a café con leche, which, you know, Americans or Italians call lattes. And uh, it's always great. It's like, uh, you know, the beach, you know, it's there. It's always going to be there. And now it's not. So that's that's a sad day. Ken, Ken, um, uh, you you used to live in Miami. You always pass. You're always passing through Miami. At least when people were traveling. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, mm. I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, as you start to see a place, an authentic type of place, a uh, unique place like David's. That's you know, it's not a Starbucks or a chain or anything like that. As you start to see places like that disappear, you as somebody who uh, is fond of Miami and likes to come through here, uh, what, what does that sort of do to your perception of um, of the area as well as Miami Beach? Well, listening to Oscar talk about it, I mean, makes me sadder. I, I, I mean, I, I remember David's, um, uh, but, you know, listening to Oscar talk about it and the sentiment, sentimentality, it's really, you can feel it. Um, I mean, you well, know, well, I, guess I, 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 I guess what I'm asking, Ken, is if, if Miami Beach loses places like David's and it all becomes Bed Bath & Beyond, and it all becomes, uh, you know, uh, uh, Olive Garden. Uh, does it have the same appeal? Does does the sand is the sand enough to sort of drive someone like you down here to visit, or or are you coming here more so for these little knockoffs and these oddities uh, uh, complemented by the national chains? Well, I mean, what attracts me to Miami is the Latin culture, and that's not going anywhere. But it would be really sad, just like up here in D.C. I mean, I live in a neighborhood with a ton of. Jamaican restaurants, African-American restaurants, Ethiopian restaurants. I mean, these places are not going to survive and the city is not going to be the same. I mean, it's it's pretty heartbreaking, really. I mean, so, I mean, it's not going to dissuade me from coming to Miami because I come down to visit friends like you. Um, And Miami's a Latin city and it's, you know, I can't imagine the entire city is going to be destroyed but you hate to see this sort of stuff it unravels the fabric of a city um yeah well said uh, yeah. Talk, talk about unraveling talk about unraveling and john this one well, for so- you has come from cbs4 uh miami headline external connectivity issues causing problems on first day of online school in Miami-Dade County. Anybody who doesn't know Miami-Dade County, uh, an epicenter for the COVID, uh, the school uh, officials decided that everyone was going to go online. Uh, What ultimately happened is an entity was chosen and people, teachers, uh, students, everybody was supposed to log in and they're supposed to be able to learn so they could measure if students were actually uh, attending class and, 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 and programs were being done. Lo and behold, the day one, the system goes sideways 
anybody who attempted the login is getting credit of being there. And effectively, they don't know when and how it can be fixed. Now, Oscar, you, you have kids going to school, but I want to get John's perspective. Is somebody yep. sort of looking in from the outside? John, what, what, what say you uh, to this um, situation? I'm curious. What, do today, you know what, it just happened today. Happened? Today was the first yeah. day of school, yeah. August the 31st. And I'll read you the lead, John. It's back to school for Miami-Dade students, but um, students and teachers are encountering some connectivity issues on the first day of online learning. In a tweet Monday morning, Miami-Dade County Public Schools posted the following. The district's data center is experiencing external connectivity issues with the Internet from uh, dateschools.net. The problem has been identified and staff is working diligently to resolve it. We thank you for your patience. We're hoping to have it fully operational in half an hour to an hour. However, as a system, we will be um, publishing via all means and alternative access for students and teachers. Students from elementary schools to high schools reported issues with joining their online classes. Wow. Because um, the reason why I asked about the timing of it is because there, as as you probably heard, there was a, a worldwide outage or oh, over the weekend. Outage of internet. Um, yeah, over the weekend. Well, well there there, there was a report on that. WLRN, which um, is the local um, uh, public radio affiliate down here. Uh, uh, there was a discussion going on where basically the system got overwhelmed, wasn't able to test uh, uh, before day oh. one came. Perfect example. I don't know if you guys uh, uh, you ever heard about this, but whenever a new stadium opens, they do a process where they have everybody going to the toilets. And everybody right. kind of flushes the toilets at the same time to make sure that, the, you know, the piping can hold a brand new stadium. Well, apparently, <laughs> uh, you know, Miami-Dade County, given the size and the magnitude of the school district, uh, they weren't able to do that. And day one, it failed. As part of the discussion this, uh, this morning on the radio or this afternoon, there was also uh, uh, something mentioned that uh, there, there wasn't a competitive bidding process for the third party who's providing this service because this was an emergency. So somebody was selected and basically put to the given the task without necessarily being tested. That's at least what's being said. What does that sound like? Well, well, I I, I guess, I guess, John, my my question to you, does does this then, if if the online issue exists, and then I want to go to Oscar, if the online issue exists, does that mean that um, kids are going to have to go physically to the classroom if they can't get this uh, thing worked out? And they've had months to work this out, by the way. So what, what, what say you, John? Um, I don't think there's going to be a move to go to the classroom anytime soon. Um, there's too much of a question mark going on with that. As, and as far as testing, why, my question is, why didn't they do testing beforehand? Even if, if it wasn't full bore testing, why not test the, the system at all? You know, at all? Um, because you're asking but, for but, but again, like though, John, I think the magnitude in the article you know, I'm looking at from CBS4, it doesn't tell you how many students are in Miami-Dade um, uh, County school system, but it's one of the largest in the country. So, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the stadium. Everybody flushes true. the toilets That's true. to make that sure that, you know, when, it, when, when an event's going on, uh, the, uh, the, the plumbing isn't going to get overwhelmed. Where this, they couldn't necessarily do it with the number of people. So. Yeah. So and did you say in the story that it came no back? no no it still hasn't been rectified, rectified uh, Oscar you you have um you have children that go to school um wh- what can you tell us and, wh- and wh- what's been your response to this so last at the end of the last year the kids were doing Zoom yep. in the classroom and that seemed to work fine it was a little uh, uncomfortable for the kids because they have to sit in front of the computer for long periods of time. The expectation was that it was going to be worse because then it was only a couple of hours. Now it's supposed to be something like eight. But in 
the case of this week, as it's been explained, it's supposed to be almost tutorial. Yes, we could not get into the portal, what they call the portal, which is the website interface. Oh, so you couldn't ask her? You, no. you weren't able to? Oh, no. my God. But they gave us, again, we went back to the original tech, which was Zoom, and it worked fine. And the kids were fine on Zoom, and there's a special app where the teacher posts information. So she said, uh, you know, we, we just finished one session. We'll meet back here at 1 o'clock. Here's the Zoom link. So there are alternatives. I can tell you that I've spoken to plenty of parents. Yep. And there's two different sets of classrooms. One where the kids are supposed to be back sooner than later. And one where the kids are supposed to be back later than sooner. My kids in the later than sooner. And there's a bunch of parents that I know that are in that group. Got it. Put their kids in the later than sooner, which means... It won't be until the phase three where they go back to school. I do not expect in any way that these troubles will yep. create any kind of incentive or fire under their feet to get to get the kids into school faster. It's not going to happen. I think there are plenty of parents who are very concerned that yep. their kids could get sick. And most parents feel like their kids are their their treasure. So the last thing they want is to have that kind of situation on top of the fact that if kids are, are more resilient they might pass it on to older people to their grandparents and then yep. that changes the equation significantly so i think there's enough barriers to use a real estate term barriers to entry here so that yep. the kids will not be coming back to school because of these issues they'll all be resolved we'll use zoom or we'll use something else it'll be fine okay fantastic um just as a as a side note uh, related to that um, in listening to that WLRN interview, I guess the the the, the public radio um, uh, public radio uh, affiliate down here in Miami, they they were talking about how the the, the problem with the Zoom scenario. Uh, what what occurred is every teacher had their own specialty or their own preference. One would use Zoom, another one would use some Google version. They would use a Microsoft version. So so the students, in order to tap into different teachers would have to be using and downloading a whole variety of different apps. So that was the idea to mm. sort of centralize it. So at least that's what, that's what was discussed. Uh, discussed so, so Ken, I want to go to you on this next story. This next story mm. comes out of the real deal. And you don't, I'm not necessarily asking you about this particular case, but I'm asking you about the concept. So it comes out of the real deal. The, uh, this is by Catherine Kaller. Just Catherine um, is one of our uh, regular uh, panelists. Uh, headline, co-working virtually. Coral Gables Space rolls out memberships. This is what I said. Co-working virtually. Coral Gables Space rolls out memberships. Mm -hmm. Two levels of virtual memberships start at ninety-five bucks a month. So a developer, Rishi Kapoor, his locations ventures is launching a virtual membership geared towards coaxing people, coaxing. (laughs) I'm thinking coaxial cable, coaxing people back to the office. As co-working operators get creative in the time of COVID, Location Ventures recently opened its co-working concept forum, a 9,000-square-foot space at 275 Alhambra in the Gables. About 90% uh, percent of the space is private uh, suites with space up to, uh, for up to six people. There's two types of different memberships. The two levels of virtual membership are meant to act as a bridge between a full return to the office and the typical virtual office space that offers uh, uh, a mailing address and other services. So, Ken, what, what I guess I'm wondering is, um, is this the wave of the future where maybe because of licensure purposes, regardless of your state, maybe you're selling insurance, you're selling uh, 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 real estate, anything like that. You go ahead, you hang your, you create your company there uh, virtually. You never actually set foot in there, kind of like a P.O. box online. 
And then lo and behold, you get to work out of Starbucks or your home or something like that. Is that, um, what, what, what say you, is this, is this something that uh, could work? Uh, speaking from a man who uh, has done freelance work, you've been on staff, you've done a whole variety of different things. And mostly been working at home for 30 years though. So, I mean, but even I am having a hard time coping with working at home under these circumstances. But that's a, so that's a strange concept though. I mean, so you're not going to actually go into this office? No, no, no. You basically like, like, like real estate, for instance, and I'm a licensed real estate broker, real estate, for instance, you have to have a physical address. Yeah. And with that physical address, if the regulators need to come or anybody needs to look you up and find you, Basically, that physical address is that. That's why people aren't supposed to do it out of their homes, or right? Like their 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 they, you know their their office within their their condo. So they need to go get a physical commercial space. Well, this group apparently they're saying, well, what the hell? Let's charge people ninety five bucks a month. You go ahead, you pay this fee. You claim that you're here and you'll be here virtually because we'll keep our servers here or whatever the case may be. And now you'll be able to qualify to meet sort of the state uh, regulatory standards. And then if you need to tap into a conference center space or anything else, you'll simply just come in and pay us extra, uh, you know, by the by, by the uh, time increment in order to use that space. But don't I mean, it's it, like it seems to me that there, a variation of this concept has been around for a, a while. I, I guess I, I mean, people rent. But, 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 but Ken, I think what the difference is, and, and, and you're right, um, uh, this concept has been around. There was something called WeWorks, which turned into right. a, a huge disaster. I think, I, I think the difference is here is you never actually have to set foot. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of like um, uh, you, you basically are going to sign up. And from a legal perspective, you're there, but right. you might never in your life actually go in there and you're charging 95 bucks a, uh, 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 95 bucks a month at, at a minimum. Well, it seems, look. I mean, this is the first I've heard of this. I mean, it seems to me, though, that just in general, everybody's moving towards uh, non-office scenarios. I mean, I know a lot of people who, and I'm sure you all do, who are um, planning on spending, you know, through 2021. Maybe it won't go on that long. I hope not. But, I mean, people are already looking at non-office options um until at least the middle of next year so you know i mean it just seems to me that this is a variant of of you know the, the collapse of social work as a social activity exactly uh, and so 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 oscar oscar let me ask you um <laughs> we, we all know about the meltdown of we work we work has the same concept but basically you go in there physically uh you know during, there's a break room if you want you go in there there's beer there's all kinds of stuff um, I, Oscar, what, what, what is this concept of 95 bucks to 150 bucks a month? Uh, you basically don't have to physically go to the location. Don't even have to know anything about it being there. What, what do you, what impact do you think this can have this undercutting, if you will, of the WeWorks of the world? What, what do you think that's going to do to office vacancies, which are already, um, uh, potentially spiking because most people are working from home now because of the zoom concept. Well, I just read a story that, some businesses are rethinking the idea of letting everybody stay home. And, oh, wow. Yeah, because it's mm. undermining productivity and the social dynamics of a, of a business. And it's creating some problems that they don't like. It's sort of like when uh, everything went uh, in, in an office, interior design went open, open. I forget what it's called, but it's like an open plate. Yep. And, and you had glass 
offices on the edges until they they did that they didn't realize that all the sound was bouncing off the glass and and hitting people that were in the middle in those little islands yeah and it was creating a lot of problems so now everyone's home and there's productivity issues and other issues and i'm sure that like with any situation you're going to find some people that work great working from home and some that don't there's no absolute perfect situation but it's a variation that i guess is going to be part of the marketplace until the marketplace says no and we haven't gone there yet so maybe this will be a trend for a little while until someone's you know the the basically there's a big pushback i mean going back to the story about schools you know you think okay well this is a big tech problem people are having the kids are having trouble getting on this may force the schools to change their position and have kids in class no so in this case you have another variation where they're like okay you pay a membership you don't even have to go (laughs) exactly yeah this is gonna work and then the market says no so uh we'll we'll have to wait and see i mean it's a tough one it sounds very strange it sounds like Who's going to pay that? Why would they pay that? Why? Well, they... well, I mean, potentially you pay that because you don't want to drop 500 bucks a month on office space. And you're like, screw it. I don't even use it anyways. I'm always at Starbucks or I'm always but it's, at home. It's like a gym where <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. 200 a month and you don't show up. And that's part of the expectation. Like the gyms build that into their space. So they don't necessarily. But, but the only have... thing is I, mm-hmm. I could see because of licensure purposes where you need to have a physical location and it can't be within your home. Maybe you live in the Gables or somewhere else. You know, even a law firm, you could do a whole variety of things. But that being said, guys, let's let's take our first commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into um, large uh, apartment building uh, uh, transaction. We're going to get into Wells Fargo and forbearances, and we're going to get into MGM. So stay tuned. Don't buy a South Florida condo discounted or distressed before taking a Condo Vultures correction tour. CondoVultures.com offers weekly bus and walking tours that focus on educating buyers on the how-tos of identifying discounted condos, analyzing the opportunities, and purchasing units. Every tour attendee receives a list of all condo projects in a particular market, a market assessment handout, and unmatched expert analysis. For more information on the condo correction tours, please visit condovultures.eventbrite.com or call 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures podcast. This is Peter Zalewski. This is the Miami Real Estate and Economic Roundtable. It's a discussion by current right. and former journalists of some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week. I got Oscar Musabay, I got Kevin Silverstein, and I have John Feckler. John, I want to uh, throw story number four to you. It's coming out of The Real Deal, uh, New York. Headline, borrower sue Wells Fargo over forbearance policy. Lawsuit claims bank placed mortgages into forbearance without consent damaging borrowers' credit reports. Story came out today. Borrowers are suing Wells Fargo for placing their home loans in forbearance without explicit permission. In a proposed class action lawsuit filed uh, with the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, borrower Pamela Del Parra claimed that Wells Fargo put customers' mortgages into forbearance regardless of whether they actually requested it. Uh, Law 36 reported, 360 reported, Wells Fargo allegedly moved the mortgages into forbearance if a customer contacted the bank and said they were experiencing distress related to COVID-19. That allegedly resulted in damage to borrowers' credit reports. John, what say you? CARES Act comes out and says, hey, if you're having any problems under CARES Act, you can go ahead and ask for forbearance uh, for six months and then potentially increase it to, to, to 12 months. Now, lo and behold, Wells Fargo, if anybody calls to inquire, they immediately shift them over to forbearance, and now it reflects 
So if they're trying to refi, they're trying to sell, they're trying to rent, they're trying to do anything like that, it's immediately going to be shown on there. So what 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 say you, John? Boy, oh boy, that's a that's a shock. I mean, that's going to be a real warning uh, for other banks because just because somebody inquired about a forbearance, there's no paperwork, there's nothing signed, and you're going to go ahead and and you know put that through, and your credit rating is going to get hit. I mean, I just can't. Can um that um. Wells Fargo a, a couple a, years back, they, they bad, got into some uh, trouble with the feds because they some of their um uh, you know their bankers were go ahead and opening up accounts that individuals hadn't requested. Uh, uh maybe you went in there for a checking account, and lo and behold, they opened up a savings account and this and that and that because they were all being incentivized to go ahead and um uh try to bring more business. Now, uh, the reason I mentioned that is that there seems to be a little bit of a track record. There was a change in, in leadership and a whole variety of other things. But uh, that being said, as a backdrop, I've been told that many of the lenders in anticipation of this forbearance period ending, and let's just say it began in April of 20, it theoretically could end unless there's a change by Congress in April of 2021. I've been told there's hit lists being created by lenders. So as soon as somebody, uh, as soon as day 366 comes, remember 365 days in a year, and that's what you can get under CARES Act. As soon as right. day 366 comes, the lenders will be moving aggressively against these individuals. Do you think that this is maybe, uh, uh, you think this could be connected to that? Or do you think this is just being a very aggressive, this bank is taking a very aggressive stand? Well, Wells Fargo, as you noted, did uh, uh, have its uh, problems during the, uh, uh, during the banking crisis. I mean, That's there right. was a story that, um, I remember Huffington posted on Wells Fargo just laying out. Its, I mean, it wasn't just you know signing people up for accounts they didn't know about, yep. but just long, long, long record of fraud. So it's probably partly indicative of you know the bank itself and the culture of corruption of that bank forever. I mean, um, and you know, I don't even remember where Wells Fargo came out of and what you know what various mergers. Uh, led us to the current scenario. But, it, you know, I would expect, unfortunately, all these uh, lenders are going to be very aggressive. And, you know, Wells Fargo, I'm, like, I would expect it to be leader of the pack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so speaking of leader of the pack, Oscar, let's go to you with this one. This one's coming out of the multi-housing news. Multi-housing news, it's an industry publication. Here's the headline, Oscar. AIMCO acquires Miami apartment tower. Marcus and Millichap represent both parties in a $120 million portfolio deal that include that uh, is comprised effectively of 275 rental units, 275 rental units, as well as dirt developable land that could permit as many as 89 additional units. So uh, where's this property? It's located in greater downtown Miami, right off 34th street and Biscayne Boulevard. It actually fronts Biscayne Bay. It was a project that the uh, founder of Carnival Cruise Lines uh, actually developed, Arison, 10 Arison. It's, th- it's still, until recent, until this deal was done, was controlled by the Arison um, uh, uh, Trust or family, if you will. Deal trades for $120 million, Oscar. They sell, it's sold to a group that's out of town, a massive REIT that goes ahead and buy, buys rentals. I typically say when locals are selling and out-of-towners are buying, that's typically the sign that the market is over. But this $120 million figure, just to give you a little uh, little um, context, Oscar, 
There's 275 units in, within the property, including the dirt. But let's just run the numbers by by uh, per unit. That's about four hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars a door. Four thirty-six a door. If you add the eighty-nine units that potentially could also be built, that takes you to three sixty-four, which works up to three thirty a door, Oscar. Now, ultimately, there's a concept where you can go ahead and knock the damn old building down because it was built in '84. It is coming up on a forty-year recertification, which is going to mean massive um, renovations are going to be necessary. But if you knock it all down, you can build up to six hundred and sixty units on the site, which comes at about one eighty-two a door. Oscar, how do you make sense of $120 million for an apartment building that was built in 84? Um, granted, it's on the bay, but we're in a situation where the rental market is flooded. Downtown Miami has six months of rental supply uh, that's listed. It doesn't include all the REIT product, which represents another 10,000 units or so. So the REITs are looking for stable and consistent income. That's okay. what they're about. So they're scouring the country looking for opportunities like this. And... It's. I think it's difficult to put it into the market and say it's it's in, it's indicative of something specific because they're always doing this. The REITs yep. are trying to create portfolios that they can position for uh, three to five year turnarounds. Yep. So I would imagine that their numbers are showing that a building like this and buildings like it are going to deliver a steady return. And at that value, they increase the rent even and still get uh you know some margin off of it and put it in a bigger produce a decent return and that their investors will be interested in so i think it's it's not a sign that the market is anything that is either doing badly or doing well i think it's a it's just how reits work and what they're looking for and if you look around south florida you'll see all kinds of different apartment buildings that are trading because trading two REITs and being traded by REITs because it's a three to five year turnaround and they are looking to make some money and reinvest. Got it. And Got it. you know, what's also interesting, I think, is that Joe Biden has suggested that he's going to generate some taxes by closing the 1031 loophole. And maybe there are some commercial investors that are looking for opportunities now before a possible change if Biden is elected. So I think some of those variables might be at play. Um, but that's what REITs do. It's like, you know, questioning why a shark swims. It has to swim because it has to live, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think REITs buy because they have to and they sell because they have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go to story six. This is CNBC. And Ken, this one's for you. MGM Resorts lays off 18,000 previously furloughed employees. Uh, CNBC, when they do a piece, they, they give you three uh, bullet items. Bullet item number one, and MGM Resorts will send separation letters to 18,000 furloughed employees. Point number two, the casino company plans to keep recalling additional workers as it reopens properties and adds amenities. And point number three, MGM company will continue to offer health benefits to furloughed employees through the 30th of September. Now, back at the beginning of the year, there were 70,000 employees with MGM. 18,000 of which uh, are now who are furloughed. They're now gone. Ken, um, Vegas has supposedly been coming back, Las Vegas, uh, where MGM has a huge presence. Uh, for them to have to permanently lay off these people, what do you think this says uh, for tourism? What does it say for gambling? And what does it say for South Florida, which is so heavily dependent of, uh, upon tourism? Well, I mean, it's like everything else with this pandemic. It's really hard to predict anything with certainty. But 
I mean, it, it's it's very hard to imagine that you know, a city like, like Las Vegas, even more than Miami, because who's going to go to Las Vegas? I mean, I would think, I, I don't know the numbers here, but I would think Las Vegas is more dependent on tourism than Miami, right? I mean... Well, well, and the interesting thing about uh, about Las Vegas, anybody who doesn't know, people from Los Angeles basically to drive over, it takes a few hours. It's uh, you know, it's a nice drive. You get to open it up, and uh, you know, on, on the interstate, you get you pull into Vegas. Basically, everything you can't do in California, you can suddenly do there. So a lot of people make the weekend trip. That's why I would have figured that Vegas would be um, you know doing well simply because of the, the California people, especially uh, the way technology is going based on stock valuations. Right. Well, but. I mean, you, when you've got people in a casino scenario, like a casino environment, yep. it's almost the, the thing about COVID that is so maddening in, or one of the many maddening things about it is all it takes is one outbreak and everything shuts down. Um, and it's hard to see how casinos are not going to have outbreaks. So MGM laying off that number of people, it's scary. It's terrifying. And, you know, God, healthcare until September 30th. Wow. I mean, these people are yeah. unemployed. I mean, it just, it feels like, I don't know. There are days that this, it just feels like this is, you know, the end of the world. Um, That's true. John, yeah. John, I want to I ask you. So M- MGM in Las Vegas is primarily a domestic crowd. Like I said, you get a lot of Vegas people. You get a lot of Chicago uh, ends that go out there. New Yorkers go to Vegas, but, you know, it's a long flight. Um, so my, the point being is MGM, which is domestic based, if they're laying off this many people, what, what does that mean for South Florida, which is more foreign national based, especially, um, you know, Miami beach, downtown Miami, where you're tapping into Latin America, the Caribbean and Europe. So, so if the domestic person who's staying in country and doesn't have to worry about a quarantine or like that, if they're not going out and spending their cash, are the foreign nationals going to spend it in South Florida, especially Dade County? No, I think that's a, a very good point. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. No, no, see, no. I, I'm just saying, generally speaking, uh, I'm trying to simplify I'm it. Curious. I, mean, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in hotels, but I'm saying MGM's MGM presence is primarily is in Vegas. They own such a chunk of Vegas; it's overwhelming. Yeah. And 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 their clientele is people coming from the Midwest, people coming from the West Coast, and they all converge on Vegas, where oh, many okay. people east of Chicago right. they tend to go down to Miami. Gotcha. For their tourism, or, or Atlantic City, or some other place. Yeah, I think that uh, the dynamic in yeah, right, right, and, that, and you have a different dynamic here, uh, tourism-wise as well, Miami. I think we were talking about it earlier with um, Oscar's comment about you know this being a landmark area for Cubans, a very historic area. You don't really have that history in Las Vegas, and so you know things that'll affect like Cuban restaurants closing down, yep. other landmark um, places closing down. I think you've got, you know, people come to Miami for those reasons, for those, you know, and yeah. you don't have that, you don't have that same, you know, they're going to Vegas for gambling. They're not going there to, you know, to look at the history of Las yeah, Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, guys, with that, let's take our next I, commercial you know, break. On the other side of the break, we're going to go ahead and get bad, into the prediction segment of the Miami Real Estate and Economic Roundtable. Hi, this is Oscar Musabai from Influence Communications. In this age of coronavirus, nothing is more important than keeping your current customers and attracting new ones. And at Influence Communications, we are expert 
at reaching out to the media and letting them know that your business is open and the services that you provide. And our expertise is in adaptation, helping businesses change their messaging on a regular basis to make sure that they are keeping up with what is happening and what the market is demanding. And we also specialize in reaching out to Spanish language media to get your story out. So please call me, Oscar Musabai, 786-348-9257. That's 786-348-9257. 786-348-9257. Thank you. This is Peter Zalewski of the Kind of Vultures podcast. Um, we had an item that we discussed during this week's roundtable. The roundtable was published on uh, Wednesday, September the 2nd. Uh, shortly thereafter, the source of our, our roundtable um, discussion item corrected the number, the purchase price of the transaction. This was for the Miami Tower that traded in Greater Downtown Miami. Originally, the publication, which is multi-housing news, they said it was $120 million. They subsequently have uh, corrected that amount to be just under $90 million, $90 million. So I just want to put that correction in there. Sorry for any kind of inconfusion or any inconvenience or confusion that might have caused. Um, so thank you. Welcome back to the Kind of Vultures podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. I got Oscar Musabai, Ken Silverstein, and John Fackler. We were kicking around some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week that could be having a bearing on uh, real estate in South Florida as well as the economy. For this particular segment, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction about something that might be coming down the pike. So, um, Ken, you're 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 fresh to the podcast. Uh, do you want to make the you want to go first, or do you, would you like to go third? Because I'm gonna I, I'm gonna be in the fourth spot because I don't want to uh, I want to listen to what everybody else says before I make mine. So, what say you, Ken? One or three? I'll take three. Three. <laughs> that being said, <laughs> let's go to John. John, you love when you get put on the spot. So, John, what's your prediction? <laughs> okay. Don't bury the lead. No, yeah, this this might be a little long-winded, but, but bear with me. Um, it was announced. <laughs> okay, so this is this is after the six hundred dollar a week unemployment benefit uh, under CARES Act uh, expired on July thirty first. Okay, However, and and President Trump signed an executive order offering three hundred bucks a a week um, uh, to make up for it. It's like a stopgap. Exactly. And talking about burying the lead, ironically, uh, this happened over the weekend. I think it might have been Sunday. Yet there was not one local story in Florida about, which is essentially a big deal, about this. Now, my, my prediction is... Ron DeSantis, uh, the uh, governor DeSantis, of Florida, who's, who's a Republican, probably, uh, and, and, and right an avid uh, supporter of uh, President Trump. The system is not going to be... Uh, governor, right. Right. And, he had some okay. major issues in the system, the actual structure of unemployment, where it took months for people to collect <laughs> their unemployment. Here. <clears throat> My prediction is right now he's probably hiding, maybe doing the cha-cha-cha. He's not announcing it because he's afraid that the same so, thing so is going to happen. So, John, that was a long-winded way so of my saying prediction is you think that even if the state of Florida for the agrees and accepts the $300 a week per unemployed, uh, the infrastructure uh, uh, won't be able to support it. Okay. Interesting. Um, Oscar, what say you? So, 
exactly. if the numbers keep if the COVID numbers, the infections keep uh, at this rate or decrease, yep. then I predict that Jimenez, the mayor of Miami-Dade County, Carlos Jimenez, will allow full dining in the restaurants within a month. Within a month. So that would time us, Oscar, right for October 1st or the beginning of the fourth quarter. Yep, right before the elections. Okay, and so, so you're saying by doing it right before the elections, that's going to go ahead and encourage um, um, uh, voter turnout. That's right. Okay, all right. Mr. Silverstein, what is your prediction? Well, I'm going to just go national on, on this. And also, I'm going to take the opportunity to waver on a prediction I made previously, <laughs> on, your show, um, <clears throat> previously on the podcast. Um, where I expressed confidence a month ago or so that Biden would uh, win the election. But I never thought it would be possible with, I mean, there's going to be 200, it, I, I mean, I would guess there's going to be 250,000 dead by election day. I just don't see the economy turning around anytime soon. Yet somehow, given the incompetence of the Democratic ticket, we don't want to talk uh, about politics, though, Ken. Not 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 too much oh, on the political side. You go ahead. Oh, given given just the lack of a, I mean, <laughs> the Democratic ticket just seems to be cloistered, not really out campaigning much. But despite the pandemic and the economic situation, this election is just going to be way closer than. I would have imagined a month ago. All right, so, so so Ken, your your prediction is that it will be a tight election and not a blowout by um, Democratic um, uh, 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 nominee uh, Joe Biden. Yes, I mean I, that's a pretty lame, safe prediction. But you know, it's predicting anything nowadays is just pissing in the wind. Ken, speaking of that, um, uh, so let's try to squeeze you, uh, squeeze you on this one. What, what is close? How many percentage points? Well, I think the, the Democrat, uh, Biden and Harris are going to win the popular vote uh, the way Hillary did. Uh, but I mean, I think they'll, let's say 52-48. 52-48. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. But they still can lose the election. Fantastic. It would be the first time in six elections if it happens that the winner of the popular vote loses the uh, election. So who knows? But Got I think they'll, they'll win the elect. They'll win the popular vote. Got it. Got it. Got it. And whether or not they become the um, uh, the the residents of the White House is a different story. But you think they'll get the popular vote? Okay. And then um, for my prediction. Uh, my prediction is based on the unemployment system in Florida, which basically was overwhelmed when everybody tried to file uh, to get their unemployment claims to take advantage of the CARES Act. Uh, and it wasn't until probably a month and a half later that most people would get through. I think there's going to be a very similar carryover to the school system. I think what we saw today in Miami-Dade County where the uh, public schools opened and they tried to go online and it was a complete clusterfuck. Uh, I think that's probably going to go on for at least a month, if not longer, um, until the whole system is sort of worked out. So uh, parents, I predict, are going to be extremely stressed, even more stressed than they have been. And that's going to be because of the technological aspect. Uh, people I've spoken to who filed for unemployment, they were complaining about how bad it was and how stressful it was and how many calls they had to make one day had to sort of do unless the school board makes some sort of decision where everything doesn't have to be standardized 
and teachers could take it upon themselves to use whatever service provider they want, I think there's going to be a major trouble for the next month to uh, to month and a half. So that's my prediction. If you if you have children going to school, the next month, the month and a half are not going to be fun. Not going to be fun. So that being said, guys, let's go ahead and take a commercial break. Then we'll get into the comments section. Um, you listen to Kind of Vultures podcast. Challenging times for real estate calls for experts that help you to navigate the new normal in the process of buying or selling property in South Florida. At CBA Realty, we listen carefully and advise based on stats, local knowledge, and experience. For more information, call us at 305-865-5859 or visit our website, cbrrealty.com. Welcome back to the Kind of Vultures podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. This is Miami Real Estate and Economic Roundtable. Um, we're, we went through the, the, some of the biggest headlines that have occurred. We went through the predictions. Now we're in the comments section. You, the audience, if you want to reach out to us, you want to tell us that we're doing a good job, a bad job, you want to offer suggestions, anything like that, we want to hear from you, please send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. John, um, what, what do we got on the comment side? Okay, we got a comment. Well, I don't know if everybody thinks he's a favorite, favorite uh, Oscar. Listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, he's a- one of my favorites. I got to say, the most dedicated listener we got. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, he took a. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Here we go. What does he got, John? Bad. He took a shot at me today too. So, um, <laughs> well, he's got he's got a couple. He's got no. A couple we, we don't have to go through everyone. Why don't you pick out the ones that are actually interesting? and then maybe you can make a comment. No, the, well, listen, by the way, that does not give you the right okay, to well, censor the okay, any negative uh, comments about you, John, since you're reading them. Okay. No, I'm de- Why don't you give no, us the top I'm, three I'm, I'm uh, okay. points he makes? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, the, okay. The first one for the, number 31, podcast 31. Uh, he liked the segment with pure data. He says it was useful to see where or where we are with the condos up uh, in the South at this point in time without reading things. When data is on the web, it's not that clear sometimes with what is, you know, with which, uh, what people are looking at. Okay. So uh, anybody who doesn't know, on Mondays we do, details, so I'm doing something called a condo sense. market Maybe analysis. Tell, uh, um, I will go ahead and give you some sort of perspective about what's going on in a particular uh, neighborhood or a market within the uh, South Florida area. All the properties or all the locations are east of Interstate 95. And that comes out on Monday. Tends to be about a half an hour um, uh, podcast. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So podcast number 32, he's got a comment. About. <laughs> I'm telling you, Oscar. Is you know what? I, I work at a banana plant. That's what it is. <laughs> Telephone. <laughs> Telephone troubles. He's talking about the last two shows I had some phone issues. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. He said, uh, he goes on to say, he said to go, he goes on to say, David Lyons, what an addition. He is. This is awesome. And David is, you know, top shelf, of course. Uh, Then (laughs) he goes, John needs to concentrate a bit more. Skipping my comments. He's, he, I'm what going to stress, mean? eat a pound of raw carrots now. <laughs> so uh, was, okay. Well, listen, I, you know, he might have a point uh, there. I don't know about the carrots, but you concentrating more, John. He might have a point there. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> well, I got to stay away from <laughs> Any, the Anything else from that comment, John? Sometimes. 
Uh, that's about it. He, he went on to talk a little bit about uh, uh, he felt that the podcast 33 is a bit confusing. Uh, so maybe you can tell people about is, the 30s. Uh, that was a tile. Oh, about the tiles. Yeah. What, what does he say about the that's tiles? The so, yeah. Yeah. Steve, tiles, Steve Mussolino, he's a big importer of tiles. Yeah. Uh, he's a wholesaler. Well, he's a retailer. Uh, basically, buys directly from these uh, manufacturing facilities. And what's going on is uh, yeah. uh, m- m- many of the countries where uh, tile is produced, they've been well, on lo- said- lockdown for COVID. So effectively, there's a run yeah, on so- tile. There's a shortage of tile, which is critical for flooring in South Florida. So we were talking about how the tile is reflective right. about the local real estate market. Right. Well, he said. And you're answering his questions. His question was interesting points. Okay, so, how can it so, help us? so what I would say I is on the tile, um, some people, industry, if they want to so, figure out what's really uh, going on, they don't look at what the unit counts are in any projects. They look at how many people have signed up for electricity, uh, FP&L bills. So, so there's certain ways to go ahead and figure out what's really going on. Anybody, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the program uh, Billions. It's on, I think, uh, Showtime. It's about, yeah. it's about hedge fund guys. Uh, and some women, but mostly men, who go in there Great and they figure out where to park their money, how to invest it, and going deeper than sort of what's publicly announced. And and what the tile play is, if you look at what's going on in the tile industry, it will give you a good indicator. So while the headlines might be everything is great, and if you got a shit ton of tile that's not moving, chances are people aren't really doing rehab, as well as the opposite. If the market's supposed to be stalled and all of a sudden all the tile's gone and nobody can get their hands on it, that, you know, so it's, it's like drilling down deeper and giving you a little bit more insight than you would just get on the peripheral, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't, you know, they, they don't think about it. I mean, yeah. in the Mussolino um, yeah. uh, uh, discussion, what was interesting is that this guy pre-booked, uh, he, he had a bunch of tile coming his way um, uh, before COVID came. And then when COVID started hitting, he was t- tying everything up bringing it this way. And now what he's doing is he's actually selling his product to his competitors because his competitors do not have enough tile. And why is that? Because so many people are doing rehab because they realize they're staying at their ho- their homes. They're trying to improve them. So now they're all looking for tile and they can't get their hands on tile. And and Steve is sitting in the catbird seat selling his own on a retail basis, but also selling it as a wholesaler wow. because he had the foresight to bring it in. So it's kind of like an arbitrage play, if you will. Wow. So, any, anything else, John, on that comment? Yeah. All right. So, again, if uh, the well, audience, you and the audience, you have any questions, no, comments, suggestions, uh, criticisms, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. I want to thank Ken Silverstein. Ken is a journalist, uh, 30 years running, uh, badass investigative reporter based out of D.C. Thanks, Ken, for coming out. I want to thank Oscar Musabai. He's a partner in a public relations marketing firm called Influence Communication. And I want to thank John Fackler, a private consultant, I'm Peter Zalewski. Until next time, ciao, ciao.